Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Harbin here with you. It's a lot going on. Professor Lord Martin Rees is going to be with us. What are the largest threats to humanity that we're not even talking about? There's some really weird stuff out there. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. And we've got a great geeky science uh, story for you. But first, I want to invite in Dean Obadala. He's the host of the Dean Obadala Show, weekdays 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM Progress, Channel 127, where you are listening to me right now, if you're listening to Sirius XM. The hashtag or the Twitter handle is SXM Progress. DeanofRadio.com is his website. And Dean Obadala, O-B-E-I-D-A-L-L-A-H, is uh, Dean's uh, Twitter handle. Uh, Dean, welcome back. Tell me about this new war that the Republican Party has declared on protesters. Well, I think, Tom, first, thanks for having me on. I think it's just a new front in their war on democracy. The first one was the old vote war on the ability to vote, making it harder to vote primarily for black and brown people. Now they've expanded their second front in this war on democracy to include a war on free speech. They've introduced 81 so-called anti-protest bills, as we call them, in 34 states during the 2021 legislative session so far, and some have become law. And the whole goal, really, the, the true essence here, is to stifle free speech of those they don't agree with. Because the whole reason for these laws are the Black Lives Matter protesters last year, even though, as Washington Post quantified, 96 97% were peaceful, no property damage, it, the truth doesn't matter to the right. What matters is pure power. So the latest thing is to prevent Americans from uniting and freely assembling, as we're guaranteed on the Constitution, and expressing ourselves. They are literally making it a crime for peaceful protest by either, such as if you block traffic peacefully, it's a felony. That's what they're proposing in certain places now and in Florida, or raising it from a misdemeanor to a felony. The whole goal is to stifle free speech. And, you know, this just Monday on Florida, Ron DeSantis, Governor, uh, the governor there and the Trump buddy signed into a law, a law that the ACLU says criminalizes peaceful protest and harkens back to Jim Crow. So you get a sense of what's really going on here. 
Yeah, so the law that Ron DeSantis signed, and this was, you know, at the peak of the Chauvin trial, so nobody was paying attention to what he was doing. I'm looking at this piece, uh, and I should have mentioned this in my introduction to you, that you wrote a piece titled, We're Not Blind, Anti-Protest Bills Are Actually Anti-BLM Bills, and uh, it's over at the MSNBC website, msnbc.com slash opinion, etc., by Dean Obadala. Dean, you write that this law in Florida makes it mm-hmm. a second-degree felony punishable by up to 15 years in prison for damaging Confederate monuments or the Confederate flag, uh, creating basically shrines to white supremacy, and also makes it a felony for being part of a protest that becomes violent even if you have nothing to do with the violence. I mean, this is, this, these are huge stretches. It is, and the idea of Look, Seth, there's already a lawsuit against this. The SLU and others are fighting the idea of being so almost like felony murder. I mean, they're expanding it that way, where in the commission of a felony, you commit a murder. Everyone involved in that is charged with murder. What they want to do is anybody involved in a protest, if someone a mile up from you commits acts of violence, that somehow, arguably, as the ACLU is pointing this out, you can at least arguably be charged with crimes under this new law. So... It, the goal is a chilling effect. They don't want people to go to the streets to protest things that the GOP does not approve of. It's that simplistic. It's really, if you're not going to vote for them, they want to make it hard or not impossible to vote. If you're going to say things they don't like, they want to silence you. The GOP is no longer a political party. Party. It's a white nationalist authoritarian movement that has now embraced the essence of fascism with the January 6th violence that the GOP has not denounced. Uh, in one voice. In fact, they defended Donald Trump in the latest polls. 80% of Republican rank and file support Donald Trump. And that's a recent poll two weeks ago. They saw the January 6th attack. You cannot tell me that they're not at least affirming that they're down with violence. We're, we're dealing, yeah. Tommy, you, we've discussed it before. We're in a new world here. We have the Democratic Party adhering to Democratic values. We have a GOP that has long been trending toward authoritarianism, now in full embrace of it. And they're counting on the courts to save them in that maybe the part of this law will be upheld. But their goal is until a court decides a chilling effect on people going out to protest because they fear being prosecuted. Yeah, there was a study I talked about on the program a week or two ago that was done in collaboration with Harvard and a European university. I'm forgetting which one right now. I think it might have been one of the Scandinavian countries. And they looked at over 160 governments around the world and over 1,200 political parties, if my memory serves me correctly, and I think it does. And what they found was that while the Democratic Party in the United States falls squarely within the mainstream of traditional political parties in functioning democracies, you know, the kind of political party you expect to see in Australia or in Canada or in Germany or in France, the Republican Party is so far outside the mainstream that the closest party to it was uh, Viktor Orban's Fidesz party in Hungary, which has basically Mm -hmm. taken over the media, has stacked the courts, has ended democracy, ended all dissent, rigged the elections. I mean, or Erdogan's, uh, I think it's it's called ISP, or perhaps you know the name Mm -hmm. of uh, Erdogan's party in Turkey, that the GOP has become no longer a legitimate political party. They are an outlier white nationalist movement basically. And and they're having some success here with these laws. It's kind of ironic that it was just a decade ago that the people who were out on the streets protesting were the Tea Party guys, right? They were the Republicans saying, we don't, you know, we don't want no stinking Obamacare. But nonetheless, 
I'm curious your take on this. I mean, you, you have, a, in some ways, a, a 30,000-foot view. Being Muslim, being a talk show host, being a comedian, being in the media, you've been around for a while. Mm-hmm. I have tremendous respect for your perspective and your overview on these things, your ability to, to synthesize all this information. Do you think that this is the new authoritarianism that is going to be the new standard for America? Or do you think that what we're looking at is the last gasp, which this is this tends to be my opinion, but I may be real wrong on this. I, I just wrote a book about this, uh, that this is the last gasp of the old Confederacy, essentially, of a white nationalist movement. There's a lot there, Tom. The one thing I will say for those who say, well, demographic change is coming and that non-white people will be a majority, so hence white supremacy uh, will end or at least be marginalized more. I just want to remind people that, uh, you know, in the 1850s and 1860s, the white people at the time, the natives, and they hated the Irish and German Italian immigrants who were coming. Well, after a while, they realized they needed them, and they expanded the definition of whiteness to include them. So what you have is a likely scenario where the what we view as white now will expand to include conservatives who aren't white so that the white nationalists, white supremacists can keep their power. So I don't think it's be as easy as that. Hmm. There are people who aspire to be white because whiteness has certain benefits to it. At least that's the way it's perceived by people. And they, there is white privilege. We understand that. That's part of it. The second part, this authoritarianism by the GOP, unless they were to consistently lose elections, they're going to embrace this even more. They are desperate. They are fearful of change, their they're, they're demographic change specifically, and that they view our society as a zero-sum game, that if a black or brown person achieves something, they believe it's not just good for the black or brown person, it's bad for white people. Now, only six, about 60% of white people voted for Donald Trump, so there's over 40% voted for Joe Biden, so it's not monolithic, it's not all white people by any stretch, imagination, but there's a chunk there. And, you know, you look at this law, it's like in Minneapolis, they, last week the state senator there, Dave Osmick, if you're convicted of any illegal conduct, you would lose student loans, food stamps, and rent assistance. Now, that won't become law. There's a Democratic governor, but if they have a Republican governor, that'll be a law someplace else. This is their attack yeah. on free speech. It is crazy. Thank you so much for dropping by. Dean Obadala, deanofradio.com on Sirius XM. My friend, Dean, thank you. Take care. Tom. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Teresa in Sarasota, Florida. Hey, Teresa, what's on your mind? Hi. So my thoughts are this, see if you agree. Since schools, public schools, seem to be fixated on doing the test more than teaching, I believe that parents need to start encouraging reading. I just read that American adults read, on average, only one book per year. I think that books ought to be provided in the home, and they should be nonfiction good classics like Dickens and uh, Mark Twain. They should be around the house and they should be encouraged to research things. If they hear something online or from another student or from another parent, they should be able to encourage to look that information up and see how much truth there is to that. And that might be a way to combat all this false information they're trying to give to the kids. Meanwhile, there are two states, my state included, that just passed laws that it's okay to run protesters over in the road. They won't get in trouble for it. I mean, how crazy is all of that? And those are my two things. Thank you so much. 
Well, it's all very crazy, Teresa. I love your idea that, you know, we should be distributing books and teaching reading. I think another part of that, which I believe it's Finland, it might be Denmark. I confuse those two countries frequently. But one or the other of those countries, and I'm pretty sure it's Finland, has actually built now into their school curriculum in their equivalent of middle school and high school every year a certain number of hours of teaching critical thinking skills. It's in the context of their civics education, but it also applies to science, it applies to philosophy, it applies to basically every dimension of life and every dimension of study. And we don't teach critical thinking in the United States. We don't teach how to analyze a situation. We don't teach how to... I mean, the closest we get to that is debate. I took debate in high school, and it was one of the most useful classes. Frankly, the two most useful classes I got out of high school were typing and debate. And I learned so much about how to deconstruct an argument, how to understand critical thinking from that debate class, I think that should be mandatory. And then when you read the book, you can make sense out of its good arguments and you can rebut its nonsense arguments. What do you think, Teresa? I agree completely. Thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you. It's very nice to hear from you. I appreciate the call. And thank you for watching us there on Facebook Live. A lot on the table And yes, Teresa's absolutely right. We've got now three states that have passed laws saying that if you kill somebody who's protesting, no problem. But they're also making it so that if you protest, you can't get a job with the government. You can't run for political office. I mean, this is just insane. We are looking at a fascist crackdown across red state America. I'll get into that right after the break. Astonishing news out of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that has to do with the lifespan of Americans. Since World War II, the average lifespan of American men and women have continuously increased all the way up to 78.8 years in uh, 2019. Continuous increase. Things were getting better. More and more people were getting health care. We were making medical technology advances. There was a rather dramatic decline in smoking between the 1990s and the 2010s. All kinds of things were working together. And then came Donald Trump's response to COVID-19, causing America, with 4% of the world's population, to have 20% of the world's deaths. The result of that has been extraordinary. For the first time since World War II, American life expectancy has declined. It's all over in a new video over at TomHartman.com. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. At least 34 states. This is from Asia Kumar over at Daily Kos. Uh, FYI, if you're trying to track it down, the headline, GOP officials threaten to bar protesters from student loans, food stamps, unemployment, and other aid. Seriously, not making this up. According to the New York Times, at least 34 states have introduced legislation against protesters. Between the 34 states, there are a total of 81 anti-protest bills in this legislative session, the 2021 session. One of the first is, uh, this was in Minnesota, Republicans have put forward a piece of legislation that those convicted for protesting, quote, would not be eligible for any type of state loan, grant, or assistance, including but not limited to college student loans and grants, rent and mortgage assistance, supplemental nutritional assistance, unemployment benefits, and other employment assistance, Minnesota supplemental aid programs, business grants, medical assistance, general assistance, and energy assistance. 
On Monday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed similar legislation into law. The one in Florida increases criminal penalties for crimes committed during protests, including turning misdemeanors, you know, like jaywalking, into felonies. In addition to protests, the law also increases penalties associated with taking down Confederate monuments. 15 years in prison for touching a Confederate monument or for taking it down. GOP officials are attempting to revoke individuals' First Amendment right to protest without directly doing so. I think they think that will uh, you know, get them past the Supreme Court. Given this Supreme Court, anything is possible. Republican legislators in Oklahoma and Iowa have passed bills that grant immunity to drivers whose vehicles strike and injure protesters on public streets. In Indiana, those who are convicted during protests are unable to hold state employment offices, including elected office. In Kentucky, this, keep in mind that's where Breonna Taylor was killed in Kentucky, the state Senate passed a bill that would make it a crime to insult or taunt a police officer with, quote, derisive or offensive words or gestures. Give a cop the finger, you go to prison. You could be held for up to 48 hours in jail, period. Those arrested on such charges would be held in jail for at least 48 hours. Now, by the way, if you're arrested for murder or rape, you don't get held in jail for 48 hours. You get to see a judge. This is nuts. 34 states have proposed such legislation. Three bills have been signed into law in Florida, Arkansas, and Kansas. This is amazing. This is just absolutely amazing. We are watching America turn into a fascist police state right in front of us, or at least parts of America. And this is what the Republican Party is all about. It's amazing. Lee in Greenville, South Carolina. Hey, Lee, it says you want to disagree with me. You go to the front of the line. What's up? Uh, disagree with you on about everything you say. First of all, well, climate pick one change. Thing. Well, I can go a bunch of them. First of all, climate change. All began with Carl Sagan. He wrote that book about the earth and so on and so forth, and it went downhill from there. Let me tell you this. I don't mean to talk about myself, but I have traveled all my life, 6,000 nights in hotels all around the world. I know what I'm talking about. I don't see any climate change from many, many years ago till now. It's all a bunch of baloney. I've been in India. I've been in all Af- all over Africa and so on and so forth. When a cold front goes through, it clears out the junk, and then it pollutes just the way it did back in the 17 and 1800s. The air masses clear, and then they fill up with junk. It used to be they called uh, the hazy, lazy days of summer. Uh, they called when everybody was burning the furnaces, and, the, and there was forest fires and this. Back during the what dog days of summer the atmosphere was polluted with haze now another thing you i, I, I think I you're confusing pollution you with climate change lee lee i'm assuming no, you, I'm don't, you don't you don't do science no, not, for a living I, listen i was in science all my life let, let me tell you something another thing i don't right. agree with you we see all these little bitty brats being raised by all the spoiled kids we raised and I can't control him. I can't control him. We're raised a bunch of hellions because we won't properly discipline. I don't mean be, yeah. I mean properly discipline. Okay, Lee, I'm going to stop you right there because you're just going off on a rant and you're not interested in actually having a conversation. And, you know, your stuff on climate change is just like crap. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Like, 
I don't know anybody who's ever called into this show and said, let me tell you about some scientific facts because I saw it. <laughs> it's like, really? Really, Lee? I mean, you know, call back when you've got an actual issue, you've got an actual argument. That is not an argument. You know, respectfully, it's not an argument. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is ADHD, A Hunter in a Farmer's World by Tom Hartman. This is from Chapter 3, Hunters in Our Schools and Offices, The Origin of ADHD. The earliest theories about attention deficit disorder characterized it as a diseased state that had to do with brain damage or dysfunction. At various times, it has been lumped in with fetal alcohol syndrome, mental retardation, various genetic mental illnesses, psychiatric disorders resulting from early trauma or childhood abuse, and the theory that parental smoking led to fetal oxygen deprivation. Prior to the 1970s, when ADHD was first characterized as a specific disorder, ADHD children and adults were largely treated simply as bad people, even though attentional deficits have been recognized in the psychological literature since 1905. They were the kids who always got into trouble, the James Deans of the world, the rootless and unsettled adults like Abraham Lincoln's father, the Lone Ranger, or John Dillinger. More recent research, however, has demonstrated a high incidence of ADHD among the parents of ADHD kids. This discovery caused some psychologists to initially postulate that ADHD was the result of growing up in a dysfunctional family. They suggested that ADHD may follow the same pattern as child or spousal abuse, moving through generations as learned behavior. The dietary-causing advocates 
contended that children's parents' eating habits, and this accounts for the generational patterns of ADHD. Other studies suggest that, like Down syndrome or muscular dystrophy, ADHD is a genetic disease, and the specific gene, the A1 variant of the D2 dopamine receptor gene, has been identified by scientists as the leading candidate. But if ADHD is a genetic disease or an abnormality, it's a popular one, possibly afflicting as many as 25 million individuals in the United States. Some estimates put ADHD as occurring in 20% of males and 5% of females. Other estimates are much lower, hitting a bottom of 3% of males and a half percent of females. With such a wide distribution among our population, is it reasonable to assume that ADHD is simply a quirk? That it's some sort of aberration caused by defective genes or child abuse? When the condition is so widely distributed, inevitable questions arise. Why? Where did ADHD come from? The answer is, people with ADHD are the leftover hunters. Those whose ancestors evolved and matured thousands of years in the past in hunting societies. There is ample precedent for genetic diseases, in quotes, that in fact represent evolutionary survival strategies. Sickle cell anemia, for example, is now known to make its victims less susceptible to malaria. When living in the jungles of Africa, where malaria is endemic, it was a powerful environmental tool against death by disease. In the malaria-free environment of North America, it became a liability. The same is true of Tay-Sachs disease, a genetic condition that hits mainly Eastern European Jews and confers on them a relative immunity to tuberculosis. And even cystic fibrosis, the deadly genetic disease common among Caucasians, one in 25 white Americans carries the gene, may represent a genetic adaptation. Recent research indicates the cystic fibrosis gene helps protect its victims at younger ages from death by such diarrheal diseases as cholera, which periodically swept Europe thousands of years ago. It's not so unusual, apparently, for uh, humans to have built into our genetic material protection against local diseases and other environmental conditions. Certainly Darwin's theory of natural selection argues in favor of such bodily defenses. Those individuals with immunities would survive to procreate and pass along their genetic material. As the human race moved from its earliest ancestors, two basic types of cultures evolved. In the areas that were lush with plant and animal life and had low human population density, hunters and gatherers predominated. In other parts of the world, particularly Asia, farming or agricultural societies evolved. Be it pursuing buffalo in North America, hunting deer in Europe, chasing wildebeest in Africa, or picking fish from a stream in Asia, these hunters needed a certain set of physical and mental characteristics to be successful. Number one, they constantly monitor their environment. That rustle in the bushes could be a lion or a coiled snake. Failure to be fully aware of the environment and notice that faint sound might mean a swift and painful death. Or that sound or flash of movement might be the animal the hunter was stalking, and noticing it would mean the difference between a full belly and hunger. I've walked through forests and jungles with modern hunter types in the United States, Europe, Australia, and East Africa, and one characteristic always struck me. They notice everything. A flipped-over stone, a tiny footprint, a distant sound, an odd smell in the air, the direction in which flowers point or moss grows. All these things have meaning to hunters. And even when walking quickly, they notice everything. Number two, they can totally throw themselves into the hunt. Time is elastic for them. Another characteristic of a good hunter is the ability to totally focus on the moment, utterly abandoning all consideration of any other time or place. When the hunter sees the prey, he gives chase through gully or ravine, over fields or through trees, giving no thought to the events of the day before, nor considering the future, simply living totally in that one pure moment and immersing himself in it. 
When involved in the hunt, time seems to speed. When not in the hunt, time becomes slow. While a hunter's ability to concentrate in general may be low, his ability to utterly throw himself into the hunt at the moment is astonishing. Three, they're flexible, capable of changing strategy on a moment's notice. If the wild boar vanishes into the brush and a rabbit appears, the hunter is off in a new direction. The book ADHD, A Hunter in a Farmer's World by Tom Hartman. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. Geeky science. How about we stop medicalizing the human condition? There's a a fascinating piece in uh, Forbes magazine by Alison Escalante, a a science contributor uh, who writes about the science of performance. She opens it with the opening sentence. What if mental disorders like anxiety, depression, or post-traumatic stress disorder are not mental disorders at all. And then she gets into this uh, compelling new paper by a couple of biological anthropologists begging the medical community to rethink some of their definitions of mental illness. Now, I have uh, participated in this discussion, uh, shall we say at some length, back in 1986. I published a, a book called ADD, A Different Perception. It is now out as ADHD, A Hunter in a Farmer's World. And in that book, in a new and updated version, in that book back in 86, in fact, Time Magazine did a story about it, I proposed that ADHD, or ADD as it was called back then, is not actually a mental condition, that it is a way of thinking, a a form of brain organization that is highly adaptive for people in a hunting-gathering society and only becomes maladaptive, only becomes a problem, only becomes a, quote, disorder when a person is in an, uh, essentially a farming society. You know, when, when uh, you know, the, a, people with ADD make great uh, hunters, they make great private detectives or police officers or, or uh, journalists, reporters, you know, on the hunt, but they make terrible bookkeepers, you know, just sitting in the same place doing the same thing hour after hour after hour. And actually, Alison Escalante mentions that ADHD in this article. Doesn't give me any credit, but, you know, I think I was the first person to actually propose that. And boy, did I take a, you know, a lot of crap for it. I had a number of uh, psychiatrists and psychologists attacking me in, in public and in medical journals and whatnot over the years. But I think that, you know, I kind of won out on that. But she's taking it a step beyond that and saying that anxiety, depression, ADHD, that all of these are not chemical imbalances or mental illnesses that we need to medicate. These are normal responses to challenges in life. And that if we just medicate our way through them, we don't learn how to respond to these challenges. We don't learn new adaptive mechanisms. We become less resilient over time rather than more resilient. And I couldn't agree more. And she also points out, and and this keeps getting published, this data, that antidepressants, when you compare them to placebos, are indistinguishable. Uh, there, are, there are very few antidepressants that actually perform better than a placebo, than a sugar pill. She points out that anxiety, worry, helps us avoid danger. For depression, the psychic pain of depression helps us focus attention on adverse effects so as to mitigate the current adversity and avoid future such adversities. 
She says ADHD could be a way of functioning that evolved in an ancestral environment. There's my hunter versus farmer theory. And basically is calling for a reform of society rather than individuals, rather than medicating. Now, obviously, there are times when people are just absolutely overwhelmed by anxiety, by depression, by other conditions, and medication is appropriate, medical intervention is appropriate, certainly therapy is, is appropriate. But there are also times when just talk therapy is the best thing, or just, just getting through it, figuring out a way to get through it, or, or relying on friends and family helps build resilience. And I think that this is a conversation that the medical community needs to be having more in depth. And now it's starting to become acceptable to discuss. And a lot of that really started, I think, with this whole conversation around ADHD that I started back in the 1980s and became a thing in the 1990s, a big thing. And, uh, you know, and, and now it's moving forward. So I just wanted to toss that out. I thought it was fascinating. That said, let's pick up some of your phone calls here. Nolan in St. Charles, Illinois. Hey, Nolan, what's on your mind today? Good day. Thanks for being a voice for the middle class, Tom. You're welcome. I wanted to uh, say I, I grew up in a family with two parents that were Depression-era children, and they lost their home to medical bills, even though my dad was a vet, a, you know, a hardworking union guy. My mother worked on P-38s. But losing their home to medical bills is still going on with families. Mm -hmm. And I think that one thing we're missing, and you might have had somebody talk about it before, but if we had a national health care system, I think you'd see a surge in entrepreneurship that would rival the Industrial Revolution. Because I myself, I, I have a couple patents with Fortune you know, 250 companies I work with. I got a dollar each for them. They each made millions of dollars for those companies. And that's okay. I, I knew what I was getting into. They gave me a great education. But I, I have a couple patents right now, that, but I can't afford the most expensive benefit for the engineers I need to take away from large corporations, and that's health care. And so I think if yep. that was provided, people like myself, and I, I mean, there's a lot of next Thomas Edison's out there that could be unleashed. So anyway, I, I, I'd like appreciate your input on that. And um, just is so prohibitive that medical insurance, it's, it's keeping us down as a, as an economy. I completely agree with you. And if you look at the beginning of small businesses, entrepreneurial activity in the United States, it has collapsed over the last 40 years. And that collapse has pretty much paralleled the explosion of healthcare costs. So I completely agree with you. And also, it would encourage people to leave dead-end jobs and, you know, seek out better employment. I mean, it just like everything gets better when people are not, you know, attached to the ball and chain of, of you know, thirteen, fifteen thousand dollars a year uh, health expenses. Plus, the you know, the, the total number of people last year in Germany who declared bankruptcy because somebody got sick was zero. Uh, the same is true of Norway, same is true of Denmark, same is true of France, same is true of Greece, same is true. I mean, you just go go on down the list, the United Kingdom. Last year in the United States, it was 600,000 people. It is the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States is somebody got sick. That's insane. And so yeah, it's not... Uh, uh, go ahead. 
I've been fortunate to travel to 70 countries and, and played rugby in 26. And when I've been injured in some of the countries that have these national health care plans, I'm taking care of. Maybe I have to pay for some medication or something. But the people do very well in those countries that are covered. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have used the medical system in the UK and in Australia, and uh, they are spectacular. And they're very different. You know, Australia is a single-payer system. UK is a socialist system where the government runs the hospitals and employs the doctors. They both work really, really well compared to here. Nolan, thank you. Thank you very much for pointing all that out. Gilbert in San Antonio, Texas. Hey, Gilbert, what's up? Thank you for taking my call, Tom. Uh, I just want to share with you... um my experiences in the education world, I, mm-hmm. uh, I graduated from public schools in San Antonio, and I went on to go to college at the University of Houston and California State College. I ended up teaching at the University of Houston. And it was there during the time when I found out that, like when I went, I heard you talking earlier to someone from Michigan, I think, about how cheap the tuition was. Well, that's mm-hmm. the way it was with me. It was, I paid about $112 per semester for 12 hours and stuff. Mm. and But that was when the state of Texas regulated the tuition. And later, the state of Texas turned the regulation of the tuition over to the boards of regions for all the state colleges. And then the schools, because they competed so much, the tuition went sky high. They started building buildings mm. and this and that and whatever. Now, I could see where maybe you could pay for junior college, but I just don't see how it's going to be possible to pay for the four-year education because of the way it's set up. The way it's set up, like here in Texas, I don't know. See, we don't have a statement in the federal constitution about education, so every state is basically different. And the way it's set up here in Texas, you know, what they do is um, the... uh, the professors are like a business, and it's, and you have to pay to keep those professors on campus. And there's no way to control those professors. The more popular they are, the more they cost. And mm-hmm. and I just don't see how, how a free education you're going to be able to pay because those professors are going to demand, they demand higher salaries, and, yeah. and you have to pay them. And the system is well, set up such that if you don't have them, then you're not creditable. Yeah. And professors were paid well back in the day, too. I mean, you know, relative to everybody else. I don't think that we need to take this out on professors. But, you know, the cost of education, like I said, you know, the total cost of student debt in the United States. And this is like 40 years worth of accumulated student debt is one point six or one point seven trillion dollars. That's less than Trump's tax cut. So it's not that big a a chunk of money. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And this is our intellectual infrastructure. I mean, if somebody came along and said, you know, let's just do away with every third road, our physical infrastructure, you'd think they're crazy. Tom Hartman here with you and uh, Nancy in Schaumburg, Illinois. Hey, Nancy, what's up? Hi. I was just listening to you talk about your book on ADHD and the hunter-gatherer thing. Mm -hmm. I have a son that's 41 years old. He has ADHD. I had him at a doctor visit with a psychiatrist. He was maybe about 10. 
I was asking a lot of questions, and he told me, he said, you know, if we were in the caveman era, he'd be at the top. And I just, I just always remembered it such a positive thing, and it seemed like yeah. that wasn't what you were hearing. So I just... Yeah, no, that well, and and in fact, you know, this came out of you know, I used to run a community for abused kids, or, or my wife really ran. You know, I I did the fundraising and things, and virtually all of our kids were labeled like this. One of our kids was labeled like that as ADHD, and so when I first came up with this theory, I was looking for a positive story that kids could tell themselves that would keep their self esteem intact, and you know, and I published that, and that was back in 1981 in the Journal of Orthomolecular Psychiatry, and it took off. And I started hearing from evolutionary biologists and psychologists who were saying, no, no, you're absolutely right, actually. You know, this, this, th- these are adaptive skills for hunter-gatherers, and they are maladaptive skills for people who have to stay in the same place, you know, for, for farmers, basically. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, spot on, Nancy. And, and now it's uh, just become kind of conventional wisdom. Thank God, because, uh, you know, and, and yes, there are some kids who are, who are disabled by this, and they need help or they need medication. There are the kids who aren't. And, but, you know, what we did is we changed the schools. I think, I think changing schools is a whole lot better than using drugs to, to change kids. But I'm not totally opposed to pharmaceuticals or for other interventions. You know, I think we, there is a kind of a middle path here. But, Nancy, thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. That's a great one. Martin in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Martin, what's up? Just thinking, you know, the thing with the guns, I think it's actually part of a longer-term plan that will actually create the militia or the private army that the oligarchs have wanted for a long time. Because, you see, the reason the police have tanks and helicopters and stuff now is because the public is armed that way. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't see the police justify... Well, that's the rationale. That kind of no, but I'm I not seeing gangs that have tanks. Yes, yes to automatic, you, you to, semi-automatic weapons, but not to tanks. You no. have to over, you have to overkill. You want to have your army stronger than the other army. So this is what's yeah, going on. Generally speaking, we have sat there and we had during George Bush, we had the other with the Muslims, and that justified a lot of tanks because, of course, Al Qaeda was going to land an army in the middle of Peoria and take over the city, so they needed tanks. Right. And it's just been a progressive. So now that that's kind of simmered down a little, now we have the urban mobs which are burning down the cities around us. So, of course, the police are going to need stronger and stronger weapons, and it's just going to continue. Um, Now we can actually run people over in a protest. I mean, it's been a protection of property over people. Yeah, we have three states now that have legalized legalized, uh, killing people if they're protesting police violence. It's astonishing. I'm with you, Martin. And if we weren't so hyper-militarized or so hyper-weaponized, we'd be in a much better position. Martin, thank you. Gary in Naples, Florida. Hey, Gary, greed has no heart. Hello, Tom. Harbin, thank you. Greed has no heart ever. And uh, if I may say this, we lost one of my personal heroes in political life not, and, and a personal note the kind of man. We lost a great, um, we lost a great man and political leader in Walter Mondale, and I'll miss him very much. I agree. I agree. He was a good man. He was an honest man. He was a great man, Tom. He was a great man. That's what you Mm -hmm. need as a leader. One who has compassion, and he understood greed. He understood greed. He understood that taxes are what you pay for a civilized society. And if if we don't get this tax base up, we're not going to be able to function. 
anymore. Well, we're, we're largely we're not are. right we're now, Gary. Be able to fund yeah, them. I'm with you. Thank you. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Coming up, Professor Lord Martin Reese. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So what are some of the things that we really should be thinking about, doing something about, you know, contemplating, considering, discussing that we might be missing? And what are some of the things that we're talking about? Maybe we're talking about in the wrong way. Professor Lord Martin Rees is on the line with us. He is the United Kingdom's Astronomer Royale and a founder of the Center for the Study of Existential Risks at Cambridge University and the 60th president of the Royal Society. He's the author of 10 books, his most recent, On the Future, Prospects for Humanity, published by Princeton. His website is martinreese, M-A-R-T-I-N-R-E-E-S dot U-K, and his Twitter handle is Lord Martin Reese. Lord Reese, welcome to the program, or Professor Lord Reese. What are the underappreciated risks that we are underappreciating? Well, I think the 20th century world is unique because the world's been around for 45 million centuries. But this is the first when one species, namely the human species, has the fate of the planet in its hand and can determine whether we have a brighter future or whether we foreclose all those huge potentialities of the many millions of centuries that lie ahead. And the reason this is happening is partly that we have a more numerous human population, all more demanding of energy and resources. And also, we have more powerful technology. And this will allow us to uh, do amazing things. But also, it's one thing we've learned for COVID-19, which is a wake-up call, is that Anything that spreads across a continent will then spread globally. Mm -hmm. 
So where are we deficient in our focus? Uh, alarm is not quite the word that I'm looking for here, but you know, what are the things that we really need to be paying a whole lot more attention to, both in terms of popular discussion and scientific work that we are not? Well, I think in terms of popular discussion, what we've got to do is think longer term. Of course, uh, most politicians think as far as the next election, and they think about their constituents. But all the issues that are confronting us now, whether it's uh, uh, climate change, loss of biodiversity, uh, controlling the use of the Internet and all these things, they have to be handled globally. And this is the big challenge for us. We have to, as it were, be good ancestors. We've inherited a great deal from previous generations, and we mustn't screw things up. We've got to make sure that we lead for future generations are something which uh, we can be proud to have carried on. Yeah, I'm with you. I'd like to move from the general to the specific. Stephen Hawking was outspoken in his concern that artificial intelligence represented an existential threat to the human race. You've got others who are speaking out, you know, Bill Gates and others who are speaking out about the dangers of viral mutations or viruses or just the fact that we are invading pristine, uh, formerly pristine ecosystems that humans have never interacted with before and maybe encountering organisms, most likely viruses, but also possibly fungi, you know, however you say that word, fungus, um, uh, and, (laughs) and bacteria that we may have no defenses against and we might not be able to quickly mobilize defenses against. There are people who have for now my entire lifetime been talking about the existential danger of nuclear war. We've got now a new book out uh, pointing out that in the United States, sperm counts have dropped 45%, that they believe this is the result of hormone-interrupting chemicals that are just everywhere in our food supply because they're used to make paper products uh, waterproof, essentially, these kind of Teflon precursors, and that uh, if we were to render the human species infertile, we would be the last generation of humans. I mean, each one of these things is... You know, a world-ending sort of scenario, at least in the context of the human race. Yes, what are your thoughts on right. ranking these? And have yes. I missed anything? Yes. My book on the future, Prospects for Humanity, addresses all of these things. And uh, if you ask me what my greatest concern is, it is probably, at least on the next 10 or 20-year time scale, pandemics. As you said, uh, natural pandemics are going to arise at a higher rate because of uh, more crowded uh, locations and more interaction between humans and animals, etc. And, of course, they will spread more rapidly because of more communication around the world. But even worse than that, I am terrified about the possibility of engineered pandemics because Mm -hmm. the uh, techniques needed to make a virus more virulent and more transmissible exist. And unlike making a nuclear weapon, these don't need any hugely expensive or elaborate equipment. And they could be done by people in a dual-purpose lab, in a university, or in an industry. And I think it's going to be very hard indeed to reduce to zero the prospect of some bad actors, as it were, 
releasing some kind of uh, virulent virus. We could only do this by having extremely intrusive surveillance. And one thing that's Mm -hmm. going to concern us all very much is the uh, tension between security, freedom, and privacy. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely get it. The one thing I think I left off that list was climate change, which you know, is, is turning out to Not be an right. existential yes. risk, too. Yes, what, well, climate what, change and, and biodiversity are things we should be concerned about, and they're really a collective action, whereas yes, a disaster of a kind caused by a bioweapon could be just by one ma- bad actor. And as I said in my book, the global village will have its village idiots and they will now have a global raid. So right. I do worry we very have... much about that. As regards AI, I don't worry so much about this in the long term. I think that uh, we are going to have to worry about the breakdowns in computer systems if we depend on them too much. But I'm really on the side of Rodney Brooks, the uh, inventor of the Roomba vacuum cleaner and the Baxter robots, who said that for a long time we'll need to worry less about artificial intelligence than about human stupidity. Yeah, I'm with you. Is this a job for the United Nations? How do we handle these things? Well, I think regulations need to be enforced by the United Nations as best they can. But uh, enforcing the drug laws or the tax laws globally is not very easy. But we also have to have some international body to regulate these multinational conglomerates in the context of the Internet. Well said. Professor Lord Martin Rees, his new book, On the Future, Prospects for Humanity. Uh, Lord Martin Rees is his Twitter handle, martinrees.uk is the website. Uh, Professor uh, Rees, thank you so much. This thank you very much. This is the indeed. Tom Hartman Program. Thank you. It's, it's uh, great talking with you. Very nice meeting you, and I, I, uh, I hope your message okay. goes far uh, and wide. Thank yes. you. Today we're reading from the brand new third edition, uh, the 2018 edition of The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight by me, the subtitle of Fate of the World and What We Can Do Before It's Too Late. This is from the chapter Climate Changes, which I did a huge update on over the last couple of years. Imagine you and your family had a time machine large enough to live in no matter what era you arrived in. Let's imagine that you dial your time machine back to 250 million years ago when you step out onto a fern-covered field somewhere thousands of miles away from what is today Siberia. Unbeknownst to you, the lava flow has begun in the distance. As you're setting up your new home, you might notice a reddening of the sky at sunrise and sunset, but it wouldn't seem like anything dramatic was going on anywhere in the environment. Over the next few years and decades, you may notice that the weather is growing more intense, the seasonal extremes more noticeable. Still, you'd have no way of knowing that the planet was moving toward a point that would lead to the death of almost everything. Over the years, as you become an old man or woman, your children might notice that the larger plants, what today would be our trees, seem to be dying faster than normal from what appears to be some sort of blight or fungus. It's as if the plant's immune systems have been compromised. Long after you're dead, your grandchildren might begin to notice that the rains are not coming the way they used to, and when they do, the storms are wildly more ferocious. The results are either floods or droughts. Insects and small animal populations are less evident. The air is becoming corrosive. It's getting harder to breathe. The sunrises and sunsets are becoming more spectacular with radiant colors of light cast across the sky. By the time your great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren are born, the lava flows may be settling down, but the tipping point has been passed. Although it was a slow process, it was an inexorable one. 
The world, over thousands of years, has warmed to the degree where all of the abundant life your descendants could see around themselves was doomed. The lava flow in Siberia, by throwing into the atmosphere a variety of greenhouse gases, had been steadily pushing up the temperature of the Earth. While many of these gases were themselves toxic, it would be their combined greenhouse effects, along with those of the multiplying carbon dioxide levels, that would take down the planet. But you would only know that in retrospect, when pretty much everything was dead. Fast forward to today. The climate scientists' warnings have come true. There is more carbon in the atmosphere trapping heat and moisture than ever before in the 165,000 years of human history. We're on the verge of the first ice-free summer in the Arctic in three million years. And back then, the Earth was a much different place from the one currently cradling us, or even the one in which modern humans evolved. The consequences of a warming planet are appearing much faster than had been projected by climate scientists of just a decade ago. The most dire warnings, rising oceans, freak storms, agricultural collapse, they're all taking place now. One recent July afternoon, we had an electrical storm here in central Vermont that was so severe it took out two of my computers and blew circuit breakers throughout the house. Our home wasn't unique. Many families lost most or all of their electrical appliances. Larry, a fellow we'd hired to do some repair work on our half-mile-long driveway, stood atop a hill with me a week after the storm and told me how his wife had been thrown across the room from an electrical shock she received touching their screen door during the storm. It's not normal weather here, he said. It used to be that Vermont weather was famous for always changing, always unpredictable. But the last few years have been like nothing before. A lot of people agree with Larry. Extreme weather events like the 14-year drought that savaged Australia starting in 1995 and the freezing destruction of Superstorm Standy are on the rise. Between 2011 and 2013, the U.S. suffered 32 extreme weather events, each wreaking at least a billion dollars in damage. 2012, the year of Superstorm Sandy, was the second costliest year on record, with $110 billion in damages. During the 2017 hurricane season, Hurricane Harvey appeared and quickly developed into a thousand-year event, dumping 20 inches of rain over nearly 29,000 square miles surrounding the Houston metropolitan area, flooding an area the size of New Jersey. Rebuilding from Hurricane Harvey alone could cost up to $180 billion in damages, making it the costliest storm in U.S. history. But how long until the next superstorm? The year 2016 set new records as the hottest year in recorded history, with average global temperatures of 1.3 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Along with the heat waves, flooding and drought accompanying this temperature increase are melting polar ice caps and in turn rising sea levels. The planet's sea level has risen an average of 8 inches since 1880, with dramatic gains in the last half of the 20th century. In the 50 years since 1963, the ocean rose 2.5 inches in Los Angeles, 6 inches in Boston, and 12.5 inches in Galveston, Texas. The polar ice caps are in an unprecedented state of decline, with sea ice in Antarctica and the Arctic measuring at 1.48 million square miles less than the average 1981 through 2010 average. At the end of 2016, the Arctic saw temperatures 36 degrees Fahrenheit above average. When the mathematics and physics become as compelling as they are now, big business gets alarmed. In November of 2012, the international accounting firm Price Waterhouse Coopers issued a rather dire warning for the future of business on the planet. After all, if the human race has been reduced to living in caves or is extinct, nobody's going to buy or sell anything. In a news release sent out internationally entitled, Businesses as Usual is Not an Option, as current rates of emission reduction point to two degrees of warming, Jonathan Grant, Director of Sustainability and Climate Change, said this, The new reality is a much more challenging future in terms of planning, financing, and predictability. Even doubling our current annual rates of decarbonization globally every year to 2050 
which still lead to six degrees Celsius, making government's ambitions to limit warming to two degrees appear highly unrealistic. The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight by Tom Hartman. Ray in Tacoma, Washington. Hey, Ray, what's up? Hey, you're talking about, I think it was Florida, Sam. It's open season on uh, uh, protesters with your uh, Three states have done that now, yeah. Three? Mm-hmm. So we're yes. saying that uh, the guy who hit Heather Heyer in Charlottesville would just have walked away scot-free. Or he would have been charged with something much, much more minor. Yeah, here yeah, it is. Republican legislatures. Yeah, they have passed yeah. this legislation in Oklahoma and Iowa. I don't know that the governor has signed it. In Indiana, you lose your job working for the state if you're convicted during a protest. 34 states have such proposed legislation. Three bills have been signed into law in Florida, Arkansas, and Kansas. Do you remember uh, you. Death Rates 2000? No. Oh, okay. Well, take a look at it someday. It's a little bit of a dark humor, but I got a feeling that protesters on racing tracks is going to become the next NASCAR event. Oh, jeez. Yes. The bread and circus has a whole new meaning. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the call. Bob in uh, London, Ohio. Hey, Bob, what's up? Hi, Tom. Hey. I just wanted to change the subject a little bit, if I may. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about Social Security benefits being double taxed. Okay. When you work for a living and you get your paycheck at the end of the week, the amount that you pay in tax is based on your gross amount, you know, but that mm-hmm. amount includes the Social Security that has already been taken out of your paycheck. Then fast forward to when you're old enough to retire and start receiving Social Security. And on a graduated scale, I think it's thirty-two or $34,000 for a married couple, you would start paying a small amount of tax, and it goes up as the amount of your total income goes up that you're including Social Security. Bob, are you a tax professional? No, I'm a retired truck okay. driver. Okay, because I, I confess, I did not know that the money that is taken out of my paycheck every week or every other week for Social Security was not tax deductible. I assumed that, just no, like not, my state it, income tax... No, it's not that it's not tax deductible. It's just there, period. That's It's absolutely not tax deductible. If you made $1,000 in the week, and I don't know what the percentage is, 7% or 7.5% goes to Social Security. I get your argument, and your argument is that it's double taxation. Um, you know, I'll, I'll have to look into that, Bob, I'm, uh, but it's a fascinating argument. And if it's the case, boy, would that be a strong one. Bob, thank you for the call. Keep thinking, like I said. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you, eh? You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 